and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 26 The Heroic Lion Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So we spent the last couple of episodes essentially covering the founding of the Great Seljuk Empire and the life of Tukhrul. It had been Tukhrul, the king of East and West, who had really built the empire. He had been born on the very fringes of the Muslim world to a people on the run from the collapse of their disorganized steppe confederation. He had turned a band of steppe nomads into proper Islamic rulers. Indeed, the sole legitimate rulers recognized by the Sunni Abbasid Caliph. Tukhrul had conquered all of Iran and Iraq, raided deep into Anatolia, and had been recognized by the Emperor of the Romans. But as he was preparing for a great invasion of Syria and Egypt to overthrow the heretic Fatimid Caliph in Cairo, revolts of the Turkmen, furious at being forced to stay in Iraq, had forced him to return to Iran. The end of his reign had been consumed by these revolts, though he managed to largely put them down at the cost of his dreams of overthrowing the Fatimids. And he died relatively peacefully as an elderly newlywed, having basically forced the caliph's daughter to marry him. What a life. And today, we are going to discuss the succession to Tukhrul, the founder of the great Seljuk Empire, and we are going to introduce the man who will, eventually, open the gates of Anatolia to the Turks. So Tukhrul now lies dead. But remember, Tukhrul was childless, and in any event, the Turkish rules of succession would allow any member of the Seljuk dynasty a shot at the top job. Now, Tukhrul had not liked this aspect of Turkish government. Indeed, he had not really liked any aspects of Turkish government and he had always worked to act as a leader within the grand Perso-Islamic tradition. So as he lay dying, Tukhrul had attempted to appoint an heir in the practice of the great Persian shahs and Arab caliphs he admired so much. He picked his infant nephew Suleiman, a son of his late brother Chari, and appointed his long-suffering vizier, the Persian eunuch Kunduri, to act as a regent. No doubt Kunduri was extremely excited about this, as it would have made him the real ruler of the great Seljuk Empire for the entirety of the baby's youth. But remember, as always, the Turkish rule is that any member of the ruling clan has a claim. And of course, the other Seljuk princes were not going to roll over and accept an infant governed by a Persian eunuch. I think that had Tukhrul actually wanted to implant the tradition that a sultan can really pick his heir, he should have tried to pick someone who actually had a chance. Because, spoiler alert, a baby and a Persian eunuch have no shot of holding on to power and commanding the mighty and wild Okhuz tribes. Now one claimant, a man with an actual ability to rally the tribes was Kutalmish, 
who has been popping in and out of the podcast for the past couple of episodes. Though we don't know how old Kutalmish was, given that he appears as a political leader in the sources in the late 1020s, which was over 30 years ago, he was likely an elderly man by this point, even if he was, in all likelihood, younger than Tuchel. As we discussed earlier, Kutalmish was Tuchel's cousin, being the son of Arslan Israel, the man who had succeeded Seljuk himself. After his father's death at the hands of the Ghaznavids, Kutalmish had tried to gain the throne himself, but he had been outmaneuvered by Chahri and Tuchel. He eventually made his peace with Tuchel, and had then led the Ochus tribes on raids deep into Anatolia, and fought with Tuchel in Iraq. But as Tuchel weakened, Kutalmish spied his chance, and mobilized the discontented Turkmen against the Sultan. His revolt was still rumbling on in northern Iran, as Tuchel grew ill and died in 1063. The other claimants were sons of Tuchel's brother Chari. Kavort, who ruled in Kirman, which is in southeastern Iran, and Alp Arslan, who was now the ruler of Khorasan. And I've kind of given the game away a little bit by naming this episode the Heroic Lion, because that is the meaning of Alp Arslan in Turkish. And as we have spent the past couple of episodes in the west of the Great Seljuk Empire, and Alp Arslan hails from the east, really introducing the heroic lion is a great excuse to catch up on what's been happening as Tuchel conquered Iran and Iraq and became the king of east and west. So to back up a little, after the Battle of Dandan Khan, when Chahri defeated the Ghaznavid armies, Tuchel was given the relatively minor Nishapur and western Khorasan to govern. Musa Yabgu took Herat, and Chahri took the senior eastern part of the empire, eastern Khorasan and Balkh. At this point, Chahri was in all likelihood the senior and paramount Seljuk leader, up until Tuchel conquered all of Iran and began his meteoric rise. As we discussed, Chahri was ultimately forced to accept the subordinate position as a fait accompli, though he never really made his peace with it and never listed Tuchel on the coins or named him in the khutbah. Chahri continued to call himself Malik ul Mulk, an Arabic rendering of the Persian title Shan Shah, meaning King of Kings. But ultimately, Chahri backed down and bitterly accepted that his younger brother was the paramount ruler. No doubt, he harbored hopes that one of his sons would succeed the childless Tuchel, perhaps his eldest, Alp Arslan, who was likely born in Khorasan in 1029, just before the initial Seljuk conquest of the cities to the north of the Kepet Da. In other words, Alp Arslan was likely born as the Turks fled from the north as refugees. But aside from bitterly resenting his brother, what else did Chahri get up to in the east? Unfortunately, our sources are not great as they mostly focus on Tuchel's campaigns in the west, but we do have enough sparse mentions to pull together something of a story. Initially, Chahri was of course focused on maintaining Seljuk rule of Khorasan and Balkh. Though the Ghaznavids had been driven from Central Asia, they had established themselves in northern India and were burning for revenge. And to the north of the Amudarya, the Karakhanid Khanate, the House of Afrasiab, still ruled the great Silk Road cities of Transoxiana. In 1041, Chari was forced to beat back a Ghaznavid attempt to retake Balkan Khorasan that had invaded up from Lahore. 
There's even a line in Ibn al-Athir's history that Chahri was so fearful of the Ghaznavids that he made contact with the ruler of the Turks in Transoxiana, offering obedience as vassals. That is, that he offered to place himself under the Karakhanids in exchange for aid against the Ghaznavids. But this seems a bit far-fetched to me, and in any event, Chahri never accepted Karakhanid suzerainty. In 1043, the Ghaznavids again attempted to invade Khorasan and Balkh, this time marching as far as Khwarezm, the land around the Aral Sea to the north of Khorasan itself. According to Ibn al-Athir, the Ghaznavids even made common cause with Shah Melik, the last Ohuz Yabgu who had previously attacked the Seljuks. Yet again, Shah Melik and the very remnants of the Ohuz Yabgu state were able to defeat a small Seljuk contingent, up until Chahri gathered up his forces, marched north, and utterly crushed the final Ohuz Yabgu in battle. The city of Khwarezm itself was taken. According to some sources, including Ibn al-Athir, this was actually done by Tughril, though there are some reasons to doubt this. See, the later Islamic histories are very biased in favor of Tughril, and the timeline really seems a bit tight given that the sources also have him campaigning in Iran at the same time. I think that in all likelihood, it was Chari who completed the conquest of Khwarezm, and then he just never got the credit for it, as so often happens to Chari. Shah Malik, the last Okuz Yabgu, fled to shelter with the Ghaznavids, but he was eventually caught by a Seljuk prince named Urtish and delivered to Chari. Chari immediately had him executed. Thus, the line of the Okuz Yabgus definitively ended, and the Seljuks became the unquestioned leaders of the Okuz Turks. Now after this, our references to the East start becoming increasingly sparse, but we do know that it was in 1044 that Chahri's son Alp Arslan, the heroic lion, first really enters the historical record. In 1044, the Ghaznavid Sultan Mevdud again attempted to reconquer Khorasan. A great army was assembled in Lahore and marched out of India and into Central Asia. Ibn al-Athir relates, the ruler of Khorasan, Chahri, the brother of Tukhrul Bey, dispatched his son Alparslan against them at the head of an army. The ensuing conflict ended in victory for Alparslan, and the troops of Ghazna retired defeated. Chahri and Alparslan followed this up with further raids against the Ghaznavids into what is now Helmand province in Afghanistan. But though our sources are sparse, it seems like there were continuing wars against the Ghaznavids and the Karakhanids. We see a fleeting reference to a great battle in either 1051 or 1052 between the Ghaznavids and Chari in Khorasan. And as we discussed briefly in episode 24, Tughrul himself was forced to ride east and defeat the Ghaznavids in 1052. Chari appears to have joined this campaign and marched south to defeat a Ghaznavid attempt to retake Ghazna itself. And though he was defeated, the Ghaznavids were not able to gain a foothold in Afghanistan and were yet again forced to return to India. We see continued sparse references to wars with the Ghaznavids until 1059. But it was also around this time that Chahri appears to have made peace with the Karakhanids. This may have been helped along by the continuing conversion of the Karakhanids to Islam. Ibn al-Athir, for example, relates a mass conversion in the Karakhanid domains in 1043. In Safar of this year, 
10,000 tenths of the Turks who used to attack Islamic lands in the regions of Balasugun and Kashgar, raiding and causing havoc, converted to Islam. On the Feast of the Sacrifice, they slaughtered 20,000 head of sheep. Thus God saved the Muslims from their wicked ways. As this continued, as the Karakhanid Khanate continued to become more cooked, they seemed to have come to an understanding with the Seljuks and a peace treaty was likely signed sometime in the early 1050s. But apart from this, we really only see fleeting references to Chahri and Alparslan in the sources. For example, in 1056, as we discussed previously, Chahri's daughter was wed to the caliph, who was really not that happy with the idea. The next time we really see the East come up is at the death of Chahri sometime around 1059. Different dates are written in different histories, but the numismatic evidence indicates that 1059 is the likely date of his death. Ibn al-Athir says, He was about 70 years old. He was the lord of Khorasan, and the rival and great opponent of the house of Sebuktegin, that is the Ghaznavids, and the defender of Khorasan against them. When he died, his son Alparslan became the ruler of Khorasan after him. What can we say about Chari? He was clearly overshadowed by his more famous and luckier brother Tuhro. But in many ways, Chari had been the man who had started the Seljuks down the road to empire. He had been the leader who had defeated the Ghaznavids at the Battle of Dandan Khan. He had then taken the senior, eastern-slash-left side of the new state for himself and fought off both the powerful Karakhanid Khanate and the Ghaznavids to keep the Seljuk domain secured. It's just that Tukhrul was able to not only conquer Iran, but cannily negotiate with Caliph Al-Qaim and his court to emerge on top. He is therefore always the subject of the histories, while to this day, Chahri gets short shrift. Chahri is unfortunately and unfairly overlooked by history, but his son will get his due. So by 1059, Alparslan had taken over from Chahri as the Lord of the East. We don't have any indication of a succession struggle among Chahri's sons. Likely, Alparslan was so firmly entrenched that none of his brothers could challenge his succession. But his brother Kavort was appointed as governor of Kirman, that is the southern and eastern part of Iran. And Alparslan's first action, it seems, was to raise up and appoint as his grand vizier and as governor of Khorasan a man who will become incredibly, incredibly important to our story. The immensely talented historian, philosopher, politician, scholar, and jurist Nizam ul Mulk. And it will be Nizam ul Mulk who will, eventually, really build the Seljuk state and even come to be, in a sense, its ruler. Yet, though Nizam ul Mulk will eventually rise to essentially command the state, according to his own personal account of history called the Siaset Name, he had a chilly and distant relationship with Alparslan. The heroic lion recognized his talents and was more than willing to use him, but it seems that he never really trusted him, and he always retained the ultimate power himself. Therefore, I'm going to save a full introduction of Nizam ul-Mulk for a later episode, when he finally achieves ultimate power. But you should always remember that during the reign of Alparslan, he is behind the Sultan, lurking in the shadows and building and expanding the state and its Persian-style bureaucracy. 
But if you'll remember from last episode, 1059 was also a critical year for Tuchel. In 1058, Ibrahim Yanal had led a great revolt of the Turkmen and had seized Hamadan and central Iran. Fed up with Iraq, the Ohuz tribes began abandoning Tuchel, and the Sultan had raced back to Iran. He was not able to raise the forces to defeat Ibrahim Yanal, and so he had retired to Rey for the winter, his regime on the ropes. And so Tuchel, out of options, sent word to the east. His messengers came to his nephew Alparslan, the heroic lion, who had only just succeeded Shahri as the lord of Khorasan. His messengers bore word that the sultan, the king of east and west, needed aid urgently. Now Alparslan seems to have had a somewhat messy relationship with Tuchel already. No doubt he had agreed with his father in rejecting Tuchel's claim to paramount leadership though like his father, he was forced to accept it as a practical reality. But Chahri and Alparslan did not take this sitting down, and in the early 1050s, Alparslan led a force to take Merv, the capital of Khorasan, from Tuchel. According to Ibn al-Athir, he ended up plundering the city of over a million dirhams and taking 3,000 people captive before riding back east so as not to overly anger his powerful uncle. But at the same time, the great sultan was childless, and Alparslan, as the ruler of Khorasan, knew that this was his chance to position himself well in the inevitable succession war that would erupt on Tuchel's death. So as we discussed last time, Alparslan decided to aid his uncle. He mustered the forces of the east, rode west, and defeated Ibrahim Yanal. Tuchel was thus secured on his throne, and Alparslan was now clearly the frontrunner to succeed the founder of the empire. For the last years of Tuchel's reign, as the king of East and West reconquered Iraq and married the caliph's daughter as we discussed last time, Alparslan bided his time in Khorasan. But as rumors filtered east in the summer of 1063 that the aging sultan's health was failing, Alparslan began to slowly move westwards, positioning himself for the inevitable war with Kutalmash and with the infant Suleiman and the Grand Vizier Kunduri. As Tukrol lay on his deathbed in September 1063, Alparslan entered Nishapur, a short journey from both Rey and from Kutalmash's fortress at Girdsku in the northern mountains of Iran. Which brings us back up to where we left off last time, Tukrol's death in October 1063. Immediately upon Tukrol's death, Sitting in Rey, Kunduri attempted to consolidate power acting as regent for the infant Suleiman. Kunduri ordered that the khutbah be read in the name of Suleiman throughout the great Seljuk Empire, but it appears that Alparslan and Nizam ul-Mulk had already begun preparing the ground for Alparslan's attempt on the throne, as Ibn al-Athir records that in several places in Iran, the local notables refused the order, and instead read the khutbah in the name of the heroic lion. For his part, when the news of Tukhrul's death reached him in Nishapur, Alparslan began marching west towards Rey. Meanwhile, upon hearing the news of Tukhrul's death, Kutalmish left his mountain fortress at Girdsku and marched southeast towards Rey to take the capital himself. Meanwhile, in the southeast of Iran, Kavurt left Kirman and began rapidly advancing into central Iran. 
he made for the great city of Esfahan, from which he would be able to then march north towards Rey. So the three main claimants were now all converging from the corners of the empire into its center. Now Girsku was much closer than Nishapur or Kirman to Rey, and Kutalmish got to the city first. Though the historians don't really give us the details, we know that Kutalmish attempted to take the city on November 15, 1063, but was beaten back by Kunduri's forces. With Alparslan fast approaching, and with his lightning strike on the capital having failed, Kutalmish decided that he had to retreat back to the northwest. So by the time Alparslan got his army to Rey in late November of 1063, there was just no way for Kunduri to oppose him. Not that he likely could have opposed him in any event. Within Rey, the partisans of Alparslan began to clamor for him to be proclaimed the Sultan. Perhaps this was instigated and organized by Nizam ul Mulk, but we can't be sure. Seeing his position weakening and lacking the troops to withstand Alparslan, Kunduri basically tried to salvage something of his regency by recognizing Alparslan as a power in his own right and ordered that the khutbah be read in both the name of Alparslan and his charge Suleiman. Now, there is no way that Alparslan was ever going to accept that, but he had decided that Kutalmush was actually more of a pressing concern. Additionally, around this time, Kavurts conquered the city of Esfahan. From Alparslan's perspective, his brother and his uncle were the real contenders here, and he could just deal with Kunduri whenever he felt like it. So Alparslan bypassed Rey and determined to bring Kutalmish to battle in the field. After that, he could then turn around and face his brother coming up from the south. But Kutalmish, likely being outnumbered, was determined to slow or stop Alparslan's advance. He may have wanted to better arrange his troops or maybe bring in reinforcements from his mountain fortress at Girtku, but unfortunately we just can't be sure of his motivations. With Alparslan pursuing him, Kutalmish marched his army through a valley that the Muslim histories call the Valley of Salt. There, Kutalmish broke the irrigation system and the dams of the river that flowed through the valley. As the waters overflowed their banks and canals across the valley, it became an impassable marsh. He thereby hoped to stop Alparslan from crossing it, or, if Alparslan chose to attack anyway, well then his troops would be bogged down in the mire of the marsh, and Kutalmish would have the upper hand. But on November 24, 1063, Alparslan found a fording place over the now waterlogged plain. He got his armies across, and with Nizam ul Mulk organizing the squadrons, lined them up on the other side of the man-made river, and charged Kutalmish's disorganized lines. It was a total rout. As Ibn al-Athir reports, Kutalmish's army did not stand firm against the sultans, but fled immediately. He set out, defeated, towards the castle of Kurtku, one of his fortresses and strongpoints. Death or capture overwhelmed his army. The sultan would have killed the prisoners, but Nizam ul Mulk interceded for them so he pardoned them and set them free. Kutalmish was reportedly found dead near the battlefield. The Islamic histories, which are all extremely pro-Alparslan, say that Kutalmish probably died of terror while fleeing the battlefield, but God knows best. They also say Alparslan was consumed by grief at the death of his uncle. Yeah, I'm sure. He must have been heartbroken. 
I think we all know that the most likely thing that happened here is that Kutalmish was executed basically the second he fell into Alparslan's hands. But that said, there was a tradition of Seljuk princes being pardoned for their role in revolts unless the revolt was truly existential. Indeed, this was tied to the Turkish concept of clan sovereignty. So there is indeed a possibility that Kutalmish was not murdered by Alparslan and instead just fell in battle. But we'll never really know. But though Kutalmish lost this battle, as indeed he had lost the initial power struggle with Tuchel, along with almost every battle that he's recorded as fighting in for that matter, he would in fact leave a mighty legacy. Because his descendants would rule in Anatolia, as the longest reigning of any of the Seljuk successor states, and they would oversee the establishment of the Turks in their current homeland. And so, with Kutalmish defeated, Alparslan was able to march into Rey on the 7th of December 1063. He brought with him the body of Kutalmish, who was buried with honor in Tuhro's tomb next to the great sultan. Tuhro's grand vizier Kunduri could do nothing to stop Alparslan, and he no doubt knew that his plans to rule the empire as the regent over the young Suleiman were now dashed. The sources do not tell us what happened to Suleiman, perhaps because the pro-Alparslan authors know that saying that Alparslan had the child murdered would be a very bad look for the heroic lion. Kunduri as well was not long for this world. Though Alparslan initially retained him in the post of Grand Vizier, Nizam ul Mulk quickly outmaneuvered Kunduri. He was arrested in December 1063 less than a month after Alparslan entered Rey. Nizam ul Mulk had him packed off to Merv, where two Turkish Mamluks executed him a year later. Reportedly, when he was fetched for execution he refused to be garroted. He said, I am no thief, and insisted on being beheaded. Before he died he sent a message to Nizam ul Mulk, saying to the messenger, Tell Nizam ul Mulk, it is bad that you have accustomed the Turks to kill their viziers and administrative heads. He who digs a pit will fall in it. Which, as we will come to see, would turn out to be a very prescient warning. But for now, Nizam ul Mulk had seen off Tuchrul's grand vizier and taken the top job for himself, and it is he who will really complete Tuchrul's vision of marrying Turkish military power to a Persian style state. For his part, Upon hearing that his brother had captured Rey and defeated Kutalmish, Kavorts gave up and accepted Alparslan's rule, at least for now. It's a bit of a speculation, but I think seeing how well Nizam ul Mulk had laid the ground across Iran for Alparslan, how quickly the elites across Iran had accepted the arrival of the heroic lion from the east, Kavorts realized that there was just no realistic way to win at this point. So instead of marching north to make a quixotic claim on the throne, he retreated from Esfahan back to Kirman and ordered that the khutbah be read in the name of Alparslan. Alparslan, for his part, accepted his brother's submission and did not order him to be destroyed. Yet Kavort was still nursing ambitions of becoming sultan in the end, bitterly demanding what he called his share of the inheritance. And so Alparslan, and in time his son, will eventually be forced to deal with him again. But for now, the war for the succession is over. So commanding was Alparslan's victory that the war had just taken a couple of months and had been relatively bloodless.
So Alparslan was now firmly in control of the great Seljuk Empire. The only thing that remained was recognition by the Caliph Al-Qaim in Baghdad. Now as we have seen already, and indeed as we will continue to see, the Seljuk dynasty actually had a somewhat tense relationship with the Abbasid dynasty. As fundamentally steppe barbarians in the eyes of the civilized Arabs and Persians, the Seljuks really depended on the caliphs for legitimacy. Recognition by the caliphs was critical to getting the nobles, judges, civil officials, and so on to accept Seljuk rule. It was how steppe power was in essence laundered to make them proper Islamic rulers. The support of the caliph was also critical to the Seljuk dynasty presenting itself as the defender of Sunni orthodoxy, another key component of the regime's legitimation. But at the same time, the Seljuks were clearly the senior partner, the ones with the soldiers and the Turkmen tribes. They had the military force to do whatever they wanted. Their powerful steppe armies were far and away the most powerful military force in the Islamic world, even if they did not have the cultural and religious legitimacy that the Abbasids provided. So both sides needed each other, but also feared each other. Seljuk sultans always worried that maybe a caliph would try to recognize another claimant and thus spark a civil war. And for their part, the Abbasid caliphs always wondered if perhaps the Seljuk dynasty would finish them off and claim the caliphate for themselves. But while the Muslim world was ready for Turkish sultans, it wasn't quite ready for Turkish caliphs yet. And it wouldn't be until the days of the Ottomans that Turkish Sunni rulers felt ready to make that final jump. So for now, the Seljuk and the Abbasid dynasties existed in a somewhat uneasy alliance with each other. And so, to make sure that Al-Qaim would recognize his rule and to get on his good side, Alparslan decided to sweeten the deal. The caliph had hated that Tuchrul had in essence absconded with his beloved daughter, that he had been forced to marry her to that Turkish barbarian. And so Alparslan sent her back to Baghdad with an honor guard, instead of marrying her himself, as would have been the Turkish tradition. Remember that Tuchrul had married his brother's wives after Chahri's death. This was the common thing that Turkish khans or sultans did. So with his daughter spared this fate and gratefully back home, Al-Qaim held a public session in Baghdad and invested Alparslan as the sultan. In front of the populace of the city, the robes of office were handed over to Alparslan's messengers. The messengers caught up with the heroic lion in Azerbaijan, where he donned the robes and made a public oath of allegiance to the caliph. Alparslan was now the sole sultan of the great Seljuk Empire. Indeed, by uniting the realms of Tukhrul and Chari, Alparslan became the first sultan to personally rule both east and west of the Seljuk domains. And it was now, with his throne secured, that Alparslan began the project that he would be so well remembered for to this very day. The massive expansion of the great Seljuk Empire, and in particular, the opening of the gates of Anatolia to the Turks. His reign would be categorized by a truly relentless series of campaigns, driven both by the unquenchable ambition of the heroic lion and the ever-present need of the Seljuks to provide their Oku's followers with good pasturage and plunder. And so we will end today 
with a discussion of the first great campaign of Alparslan to the west, the campaign that will set the stage for a great battle at a place called Manzikert almost a decade later. Now it is important to note that this first campaign of Alparslan was to the Caucasus and the Byzantine borderlands, not to the east, where a revolt was beginning to break out at this very moment. And this indicates the critical importance to the regime of gaining the support of the Turkmen. Leading the tribes to victory in raiding, particularly raiding of the infidel, was fundamental to the new sultan in securing their loyalty. It was so important that it had to be prioritized over basically everything else, even the revolt breaking out in Khorasan. Tied to this was of course the legitimation of the sultan as a qazi, burnishing Alparslan's credentials as a Sunni leader in addition to a nomad chieftain. And as we will see, this was all the more important for Alparslan because he, like his uncle, was a cooked barbarian. A modernizer in what we have called the modernizer-traditionalist divide in steppe societies. The man employing Nizam ul-Mulk to build a proper Perso-Islamic state and continuing the work of his great-uncle. And therefore, he absolutely needed to shore up his support among the raw, wild Turkmen tribes, who were absolutely critical to his regime. And so, on February 22, 1064, fresh off a victory over his family members, Alparslan assembled a massive horde of Oku's nomads and led it out of Rey, moving north and west towards Azerbaijan. Alparslan informed his troops, his wild Turkmen tribes, that their destination was the Roman Empire. They would be holy warriors, Ghazis, defeating the enemies of Islam on the field of battle, and incidentally picking up some great loot and grazing their herds in some of the best pasturage to be found. What a deal. As Alparslan moved through Azerbaijan, further Turkmen lords came to pledge their support. Ibn al-Athir relates, When he was at Marand, a Turkmen emir who frequently raided the Byzantines, Tukhtegin by name, came to him, along with a great host of his clansmen who were familiar with jihad and knew those regions. He urged Alparslan to attack the Christian lands and guaranteed him passage by a direct route there. So he set out with him, and the troops were conducted through the ravines and defiles of that country until Nakhchivan was reached. Thus Alparslan and his armies crossed the river Aras, also called the Araxes, into Nakhchivan, and forced the local Turkmen and Kurdish lords of the region to submit to the Seljuks. These lords pledged their troops to him, and promised to join his campaign to the west. So now Alp Arslan is sitting on the very edge of Byzantine territory with a massive horde. Now as we discussed in episode 23, this land, the very far east of Anatolia, had only recently been reincorporated directly into the Roman Empire. After the anarchy at Samara had weakened the caliphate's hold over Armenia, local petty Armenian lords had arisen who were at times allies of the Roman Empire and at times allies of powerful Muslim emirs. And just as Tukhrul was conquering the lands of Islam, the powerful Macedonian dynasty in the empire had reasserted direct Byzantine rule over these principalities. Meanwhile, the Georgian principalities largely retained their local rulers, albeit under Byzantine domination, 
until the consolidation of the medieval kingdom of Georgia under the Bagratid dynasty. Though the Roman Empire continued to interfere in internal Georgian affairs and the various succession disputes to the throne of Georgia. It's important to remember that there was a long history of Byzantine noble families with Armenian origins and even ties to the Armenian principalities beyond the borders. And in essence, the local Armenian princes had handed over their principalities to Byzantium in exchange for pensions and offices in Constantinople. But while these lands were now directly ruled by the Roman Empire, we should not forget that the local population was mostly Armenians and Georgians, and that these lands were very far from Constantinople. As the Chinese say, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And so in practical terms, it was the local Byzantine military commanders and the local nobility who ruled these lands. Alparslan began by dividing his army into two columns, both of which would move north, one to the east that would move quickly, bypassing the annexed Armenian principalities to attack the Georgian kingdom in the north, and one in the west that would move more methodically from Nakhchivan to attack the annexed Armenian principalities. Alparslan himself would lead the eastern column, and he handed the western army over to his grand vizier Nizam ul Mulk and his young son the future sultan, Melik Shah, under whose reign the Seljuk Empire will reach the zenith of its power. Most likely, this was to give Melik Shah experience in leading the armies, but we can't be certain. Melik Shah and Nizam ul-Mulk led the army north along the river Aras, striking the garrisons along the river. They quickly faced resistance by the local Byzantine garrisons, and though the Seljuk troops sustained losses, they quickly took the most important castles in the region, including the castle at Surmari, though we don't know where this is today, the sources tell us that it was north of Nakhchivan on the Aras River, and was a castle which contained flowing water and gardens. According to Ibn al-Athir, Melik Shah wanted to demolish the castles they conquered, but Nizam ul-Mulk intervened, saying, This is now a frontier fort of the Muslims. And so the Seljuks instead garrisoned these fortresses. With the frontier thus pushed forward, and their line of retreat secured by these conquered fortresses, the Seljuk forces commanded by Melik Shah and Nizam ul-Mulk again pushed north. Melik Shah and Nizam ul-Mulk passed the great city of Ani, leaving it to their left, as they made for the city of Marmashen, which lies on the river Aras in the very north of the modern-day Republic of Armenia, and housed one of the greatest monasteries of Armenian Christianity. As such, it was a heavily fortified city, whose wall was of large solid stones, bound with lead and iron. Yet it does not seem to have been garrisoned by a Byzantine force, and was instead held only by the local Armenian militia. According to Ibn al-Athir, Nizam ul-Mulk prepared the boats and the other things he needed to attack it, and then began the assault, keeping it up night and day. The Seljuk forces began a brutal siege of the city, wearing down the outnumbered Armenians through bloody attrition. Eventually, the defenders were no longer able to withstand the might of the besieging Seljuks. Seljuk forces quickly threw up ladders and began scaling the walls as the local militia forces broke and ran. The city fell to the Seljuks in an orgy of looting and violence. Ibn al-Athir writes, when the inhabitants saw the Muslims on the walls, that weakened their powers of resistance and they despaired. 
Melik Shah and Nizam ul Mulk made their entry into the town and burnt and destroyed the churches. They killed many of the populace, although many converted to escape death. Brutal stuff. Now, we always have to remember that at this time, religious violence was incredibly common across the world and was largely seen as acceptable. But at the same time, we cannot let that blind us to the reality of this horrific violence that was inflicted on innocent people. And unfortunately, the sacking of Marma Shen would prove to be a foreshadowing of future bloodshed. Meanwhile, Alparslan had advanced far to the north with his column, striking deep into Georgian territory between Tbilisi and the river Choru. That is, across the borderlands between Byzantium and Georgia. Instead of striking the local Byzantine garrisons, he marauded across the Georgian countryside. After Melik Shah and Nizam ul-Mulk had completed the sack of Marmashen, Alparslan summoned them to join him in order to march deep into Georgia itself. The medieval Georgian chronicle provides, At that time, a certain man from Turkestan, named Duklu Bak, by which they mean Tukhrul Bey, grew strong and became sultan, as the Saracens were growing weaker. He ruled many peoples and districts. He was succeeded by his son, Arpaslan, that is Alparslan. He came and took all of Kartili, killing and enslaving. The Seljuk forces linked back up in June 1064 and began marching northeast into Georgia proper. But the Seljuk armies soon came upon the heavily fortified city of Akhalkalaki in the south of Georgia. The city was truly formidable. As Ibn al-Athir relates, to the east and the west it stands on a high cliff on which are several forts, and on the other two sides there is a large unfordable river. When the Muslims saw it, they realized their inability to take it by force. Yet despite the city being apparently invincibly fortified, Alparslan nevertheless determined to make a go of it. As the river was clearly unfordable, the heroic lion instead ordered the construction of a bridge. No doubt under withering attacks from the Georgian defenders, the Seljuk forces were able to construct a bridge over the river over the course of June, and by July the Seljuks were able to launch an assault. The fighting was desperate, ferocious, and bloody, with many lost on both sides. Eventually two men came forth from the city and asked for terms. Alparslan, believing that they were going to surrender, called a ceasefire and sent a large group of men into the city to negotiate. But it turns out that this was nothing but a ruse. As Ibn al-Athir relates, when they had passed the outer works, the Georgians surrounded and attacked them, killing many. The Muslims were unable to escape because of the narrowness of the passage. The Georgian defenders then rushed out of the fortress, hoping to overwhelm the Seljuks with a surprise attack. The Muslim historians make a point to contrast the duplicity of the Georgians with the piety of Alparslan, and have the heroic lion praying while the Georgians launched their attack. At that time, the Sultan was at prayer. He heard the shouting, but did not leave until he finished his devotions. Then he mounted, advanced towards the unbelievers, and engaged them. Now I think we have to take that story with a huge grain of salt. It's clearly written with the goal of demonstrating Alparslan's piety and as part of a sort of moralistic tale that medieval sources are full of. Because of course, God is on the side of the pious sultan, and as a result of the Georgians' duplicity, their invincible fortress now falls. 
but I think that in all likelihood there was simply no way for the Georgian forces to withstand the overwhelming might of the Turks. Following this victory, the Seljuks sacked the city, burning part of it to the ground and carried off immeasurable plunder and loot, no doubt enslaving many. The Armenian Christian chronicler Matthew of Edessa writes, Then he took the city of Akhalkalaki with unbridled force. Generally, the entire city was put to the sword, men and women mercilessly killed, and all the priests and clerics and princes pierced with weapons. The entire city was filled up with blood. They took countless boys and girls to the Persians in slavery, as well as such treasures of gold, silver, precious gems, and pearls that there was no counting them. With the great fortress taken, the road into Georgia proper now seemed to be wide open. But instead of marching further, it appears that Alparslan instead wrote to Bagrat IV, the king of Georgia, and gave him a choice. Convert to Islam, or submit to Seljuk suzerainty and pay tribute. Bagrat, always focused on maintaining his hegemony over Georgia, realized he could not withstand the might of the Seljuks. So he reluctantly agreed to pay tribute to Alparslan. According to both the Georgian Chronicle and Matthew of Edessa, King Bagrat's niece was sent as a bride to Alparslan, and the Islamic sources also state that Nizam ul Mulk took a Georgian princess as a bride. Though, as we will see, Bagrat was very canny and began also reaching out to Byzantium to find a way to play the Seljuks and the Byzantines off each other to maintain his rule in Georgia and as much of his independence as he could. For his part, with the submission of Georgia now secured, Alparslan decided to turn back and begin marching home to Iran, now laden with plunder and loot from Armenia and Georgia. But the way back home would take him and the Seljuk army to the greatest prize of all, the magnificent and fabulously wealthy Armenian city of Ani. Ani had been built by the Armenian Bagratuni dynasty, the Armenian branch of the same royal house to which the Georgian king Bagrat belonged. As the anarchy at Samara had weakened the Abbasid Caliphate, the Bagratuni dynasty had broken free of Abbasid overlordship and consolidated power over the other Armenian principalities. And their capital at Ani had become immensely wealthy. Ani was perched on the cliffs overlooking the river Aras, what is today the border between Turkey and Armenia. It was built on a place where a deep ravine leads into the steep canyon of the river, and was therefore guarded by impassable cliffs on three sides, and was only approachable from the north. To guard this northern approach, the sole approach to the great city, the Bagratuni kings had constructed an imposing stone wall, stretching from the cliffs of the ravine to the west, to the cliffs of the river Aras in the east. The Byzantine historian Michael Ataliates writes, the city of Ani is large, populous, and surrounded on all sides not by a man-made moat, but by natural gullies that are impassable and full of steep rocks, and on the side where sheer cliffs and ravines are lacking, it is enclosed by a deep eddying river that cannot be forded. The area that allows entry into the city is narrow and fortified by high and strong walls. Ani was therefore incredibly defensible. And as Bagratuni Armenia became rich and powerful in the 10th century, wealth flowed into Ani. Magnificent churches and palaces were constructed, along with markets, monasteries, and defensive walls. Ibn al-Athir says that there were over 500 churches within its walls. Even today, 
the ruins of Ani are one of the greatest tourist sites in Turkey. Though unfortunately, they have not been looked after well until very recently, as for 75 years, they lay directly on the heavily militarized border with the Soviet Union. As discussed earlier, eventually the Byzantines took over the Armenian principalities just as the Great Seljuk Empire was formed. The local Armenian lords traded their sovereignty for cushy pensions and Roman titles, and decamped from eastern Anatolia to Constantinople. And so the immensely wealthy city of Ani was now home not to an Armenian king, but a great Byzantine garrison. And it now lay in the warpath of the heroic lion. The Seljuk army reached the walls of Ani in early August 1064. Alparslan mustered his men along the northern wall of the city, the only approach into the great city. Reportedly, upon seeing the walls and the cliffs, the Turks despaired that the city was unconquerable. Nevertheless, the Seljuks began erecting siege works, tall wooden towers to scale the walls, and massive catapults. They also began to mine the walls, that is, digging tunnels from the front lines toward the walls, whereupon the area under the foundations of the walls would be dug out and supported by wooden columns, before the wooden columns would be set alight, causing the walls to collapse. Some of the most terrifying fighting in medieval warfare took place in the dark tunnels underneath the walls of besieged cities. For their part, the Byzantine garrison peppered the besieging Turks with arrows from the walls, desperately hoping that the mighty defenses of Ani would withstand the massive Seljuk hordes before them. Meanwhile, the Turks began firing arrows from their siege towers and bombarding the walls with their catapults. Reportedly, the Byzantine troops were swept from the walls, but so formidable were the defenses of the city that it appears that there was no way for the Turks to overcome them. The walls remained firm. But then, a mere 25 days into the siege, as Ibn al-Athir relates, by the grace of God, something happened that they had not counted on. For no reason, a large section of the wall collapsed. Now, we don't know why this happened, but both Byzantine and Muslim historians record a massive earthquake in the region in 1058, and Michael Ataliates records a further great earthquake in 1063. And I personally think the best guess is that the earthquakes had, in an unseen way, weakened the foundations of the Great Walls of Ani, such that the preliminary mining work and the Seljuk catapult strikes were able to bring a section down. Regardless, with a gap now opened through the Great Walls, the Turks began pouring into the city. They wreaked havoc throughout the fantastically wealthy metropolis, looting, killing, and plundering. As was so often the case when cities fell to besiegers in the Middle Ages, Ani fell into an orgy of bloodshed and rape. Ibn al-Athir writes that more people were killed than could be counted, and the corpses piled up so high that the Turks had trouble entering the city. He relates that as many were killed as were captured. On the Roman side, Michael Ataliates tells us, The enemy realized what they were about to do and charged the gates all at once, shouting their war cries loudly. Aggressively destroying the gates and parts of the walls, they took the city by storm, and the slaughter of those inside was beyond telling. For no mercy was shown on account of age, sex, or creed. And a river of blood flowed through this pitiable and unhappy city. The historian Sipt ibn al-Jawzi, who was himself the son of a manumitted Turkish Mameluk, 
wrote that an eyewitness related of the carnage. Putting the Persian sword to work, they spared no one. One could see there the grief and calamity of every age of humankind, for children were ravished from the embraces of their mothers and mercilessly hurled against the rocks, while the mothers drenched them with tears and blood. The city became filled from one end to the other with bodies of the slain, and the bodies of the slain became a road. The dead bodies were so many that they blocked the streets. One could not go anywhere without stepping over them, and the number of prisoners was not less than 50,000 souls. I was determined to enter the city and see the destruction with my own eyes. I tried to find a street in which I would not have to walk over the corpses, but that was impossible. Now we should take that with a grain of salt, as Sipt ibn al-Jawzi recorded this incident over a hundred years after the fact, and as he was patronized by the Ayyubid dynasty of Egypt, he in general had an anti-Seljuk perspective. And though Michael Ataliates was a contemporary, he also has his own biases for obvious reasons. But nevertheless, there is no doubt at all that the violence, rape, death, looting, and plunder were extreme. Indeed, Ani would never again regain the same level of wealth, population, or primacy. The city would be passed around by the Seljuks, other Muslim emirates, and the Christian kingdom of Georgia, falling again and again to conquering armies as its population began to abandon it. Eventually, it would become the desolate ruins we see today. But from the Seljuk perspective, this Great Western Campaign, the first Great Western Campaign since Tukhrul's campaign 16 years earlier, had been a remarkable success. The heroic lion had secured the submission of Georgia, captured a string of Roman fortresses which secured valuable pasturage for his wild Ohus followers, and had looted one of the wealthiest cities of the Middle East. As the Seljuk armies returned to Iran laden with plunder and slaves, Alparslan could rest easy. It had been less than a year since he had assumed the throne through defeating Kutalmush and Kunduri and Kavort, and he had already secured his position as a Ghazi warrior by defeating the infidel. And perhaps most importantly, he had secured the loyalty of his Turkmen followers by providing them with pasturage and plunder. And next time, we will discuss how the heroic lion propelled himself forward from these great initial victories in his first year as Sultan, both to expand the great Seljuk Empire further than ever before, and ultimately set himself upon a road that ended at a place called Manzikert. Manzikert.